You are listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast out of Wesley Seminary at Iowa. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Assistant Professor of Pastoral Care. Undoubtedly, you have been a reader of Scripture and have left your devotional life or maybe your sermon preparation or maybe even listening to the word being read, wanting to scratch your head, wanting uh, to have a question or two answered, wondering what exactly a passage was about or what implications there would be from a passage or what theology would emerge from it. I know I've been in that spot and I've asked those questions and I confess that part of that is why I invited our two guests in today. Uh, joining us today for an Ask a New Testament Scholar are Drs. Absin Joseph and Ken Schenk. Uh, Dr. Joseph, I call him Dr. J, is a dean here at Wesley Seminary, and Dr. Schenk is dean at the School of Theology and Ministry at IWU. So welcome, gentlemen. Hello. Hello. Now, we have solicited some, uh, some questions. So some of these come from my friends. Some of them come from other li- interested listeners of the Wesley Seminary podcast. So we know that they are reflective, and they, we know they are, these are intelligent people who have asked these questions. So I'm glad that we've got some reflective, intelligent people to give some answers to them. So let me just uh, simply dive right in. Uh, let me just dive right in with one about the Gospels. All right, so we've got the Synoptic Gospels which seem to present Jesus's ministry in a one-year timeline. And then we've got the Gospel of John that seems to present it over three years by giving three different Passovers. What ought we to make of this difference? Uh, I think one of the one of the primary reasons for the difference is the fact that each Gospel writer, well, in this case, the synoptic, Matthew, Mark, uh, and Luke, are presenting the story of Jesus from a particular perspective and then the way they approach the story and organize the way they retell that story for one particular perspective, whereas John is retelling that story from a different standpoint. It's the same story but being told from different perspectives. Uh, So in, in the synoptics, if we use Mark, for example, we find Jesus Christ ministry being centered in Galilee. He's crossing this, the, the Sea of Galilee back and forth, and that's how the, the story is organized. Whereas in John, because of the case he is making, uh, we find Jesus Christ at the feasts, and the feasts happen in Jerusalem. So we find him going to Jerusalem, something bad happens. He actually travels north to hide or to safety and goes back to Jerusalem, and eventually one of these trips is going to cost his life. Whereas the Synoptic Gospels organize uh, the story differently because they have a different purpose, Doctor Shank. Yeah, this one this one seems to be uh, if you if you want to harmonize them, it's easily done. Uh, as I recall, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't say it was only one year. Mm-hmm. They don't really give any particular temporal yeah. uh, marker. Um, um, I think the earliest tradition about Mark in Papias, at least I I get the impression from the little he says that um, Mark wasn't necessarily meant to be read as, a, as a, even in sequence necessarily uh, of the events that, that happened. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't really tell us uh, what the, the chronology was other than uh, at the end. So that's easily fit together uh, with the Gospel of John. Yeah. So that the focus for them was not the time. The focus was on the chronology, and that's why the difference uh, that... So let's delve into that a little bit more, because some of the the angst that maybe comes from people um, is is having to 
harmonize some of the details, right? So I hear you both saying, right, they, they write for their own purposes, which may not be chronological, right? Which, which might be arranged thematically, uh, for instance, from the Gospel of John um, and developing a theology that, that intersects with some of the Jewish practices of the feasts. Let's delve into maybe some of the angst of that mm -hmm. that comes out of the, the details. And when the when the details don't don't line up, right? Was was uh, one blind man healed, or were there two blind men healed? Right, right. These kinds of things. And kind of underneath that is a sense of, but can I really trust my Bible? Mm -hmm. Right? Can I can I really trust what I'm what I'm reading? And and if yet, how do I trust it? Right? Mm -hmm. How how do I trust it? What is it trying to teach me? So can either of you speak to that? It, do do some of these differences? Uh, do some of them uh, undermine some of our trust of Scripture, and, or uh, do we have to put on kind of different eyes or different ears to to engage what it is it's trying to teach us, rather than put on our own questions about what we wish it was trying to teach us? Well, those things used to to really uh, preoccupy me when I first went to college. Uh, I remember writing a paper, uh, I think my junior year in college, trying to fit together the different uh, accounts of Peter's denial. But um, I, in the end, I decided that, that there are a lot more profitable ways to use my time. Um, uh, for, for one thing, uh, I was actually, I've actually been reading in Craig Keener's uh, Acts commentary uh, a little bit lately and, and in some other ones. And he argues that um, uh, sometimes we uh, impose modern expectations of what a history book should be, whereas um, uh, this is his argument that ancient historians weren't troubled by those sorts of little, was it going in or coming out of, of Jericho, that that level of detail wasn't, um, uh, wasn't the point for them. And I think at some point I, um, I, I basically stopped worrying about those sorts of questions and came to a kind of Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, I'm good uh, kind of uh, perspective. I, it's not that I don't ask those questions, I do ask those questions. Um, sometimes I leave, I just leave it open-ended, um, because I don't, I just don't have enough information to know, um, what to do with some of those things. Yeah. And if we were to approach it from a, from a process of story writing, right? So there are a couple of issues. One, uh, this is a tradition that was transmitted orally. So the, the, the gospel writers, they're writing these things from memory. And they're making a case, a theological case, for the things that happen. So again, the perspectives and the reasons why they're doing that play a role in terms of the what do they select, where they place it, how they tell it. Um, so that's that accounts for some of for some of the difference. And then if we, because if you're talking about trust. In a way, this also connects to the idea of inspiration. What do we think about inspiration? So did God make Mark a superhuman and then causes Mark to just remember things that he didn't remember before? Um, or did God use Mark or Matthew based on their own cultural, psychological, and emotional place as a human being who is retelling a story to a group of believers so that they can or unbelievers so that they can know whom you know whom Christ is. So from that standpoint, the human element is something that we need to also acknowledge. And that the church, when they saw this, the question was not, oh, should we trust Matthew? Should we trust Mark? It was, oh, Mark, this is a great story. 
ah, but this story actually is more than just any story. This story has a value, intrinsic value, that makes it God's word for me, that I need to do something and respond to. So then the set of questions that we ask should perhaps be different, because as Dr. Schenk already explained, our approach to these, the way we think about history, the way I think we think about storytelling, the genre answers different sets of questions than people would have been asking in the first century. And the kinds of questions we ask uh, matter because it, they guide the kind of answers we get. Dr. J, one of the things you said uh, really resonates with me, and that's just taking a, a first century approach or, or the second and then third and third century is when they're wrestling with what fits into scripture. It's not like they're the earliest readers are unaware of some of the differences, mm -hmm. right? They're, they're critical readers as well, mm -hmm. right? They're, they're, they're discerning from, from a variety of texts as to what fits in and, and how is God leading as a community. And so whenever I remember that, that they're aware of some of the differences and yet in humility, they say, you know what, we're not going to, wash away the differences. We're going we're gonna to let them stand alongside one another. That gives it a real um, uh, organic strength to, to me. Uh, these are, are questions that, that aren't brand new and they're not, they're not kind of like stumpers that we just have recently come across. At, at the same time, let me, let me go maybe another line of, of question on this. Um, I, I hear you say that, that some of the, the writers will, will craft a story in a way that I don't mean this in a loaded sense, but in a way that, that suits their purpose, right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're making an argument. They're mm -hmm. making a case for what they believe is the truth. And as a result, some of the details might not always line up, um, even though the, the big claims seem to, to line up and not be against one another. Suppose you have a person who is really looking or, or really has deep-seated difficulties with that effort. And they say, well, if they're willing to to use the smaller things to, to make their their point and to get their point across and to, to convince a, a person who's encountering this story. What makes me think that they wouldn't do that with the big claims as well? Mm -hmm. If they're willing to, to, I'll say manipulate, but I don't mean that in a negative way. If they're willing to use the smaller parts of the story to, for their purposes, why wouldn't we think they would use the bigger claims of the story for their purposes? How might you respond to that, Dr. Shank? I mean, one thing comes to mind is um, uh, there are uh, people around who who know what happened. Um, so I don't know if you've ever heard the you know the telephone game. You whisper into one person's ear, and they whisper and they whisper, and then we all laugh when it gets to the end of the line because it's completely different from what it started out with. Well, you think you think in the early days of say oral tradition before the Gospels were written, if the if the oral tradition had gone completely different. From the core gospel message, Peter's still alive. Mm -hmm. You know, he can say, uh, "Excuse me, that's not what happened." Yeah. And so, and so there are there are controls um, in the fact that that I mean, people would have started talking about Jesus' miracles the very day mm. that he did the miracle. These stories have been around, mm -hmm. uh, and so. It's not like somebody can just, oh, I'm going to make up a gospel that's like completely wrong, you know. Well, there are people who know what the real story, you know. So so I think the very nature of that situation uh, would preclude from the stories going completely mm -hmm. off into some strange territory. We could also ask, what will the alternative be? Let's say all of these stories 
really lined up everywhere and say exactly the same thing. In our 20th century mind, we'll say, oh, they plagiarized. <laughs> That's a conspiracy. Mm -hmm. So the the heart that that the posture and the heart that believes and gives these documents this, the, the benefit of the doubt, if I if I'm allowed to use that term, um, will 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 find in them God's word and see the power of the Spirit, which then works in you know their lives. And in terms of the purpose, John tells us. If we were mm -hmm. to write everything, the whole world will not contain them. Mm -hmm. But these are written so that you may believe. And in believing, you have life in his name. So, so the differences between the birth stories and the resurrection stories are actually an argument that there was a, a, a miraculous mm -hmm. birth and a, and a resurrection event. But something happened. Yes. Right? Some, yeah. Something happened yeah. here. And, and you know whether tombs opened up or whether that's metaphorical or whether that's theological or, or historical, you know, some of those questions we're, we're left with. And I hear you say it's okay to ask those, mm -hmm. but, but as, as t uh, invested Christians and, and teachers of Christian leaders, I also hear you say there, there comes a, poor, uh, a spot where you have to ask, is this, is this um, what my faith rises and falls on? Right. Is this is this um, kind of the is this going to fit into my understanding of the rule of faith? Right. The, or the story of faith that Christ has come, Christ has risen, Christ will Christ come will again. Come again. Uh, so I, pre I appreciate that. Let me let me keep tracking a little bit with the um, criticism of New Testament. One of the things that the New Testament criticism specifically um helps us with in, in this question is authorship. And so we've got a number of, of letters that that uh, traditionally, you know, we think come from a person named Paul. And we have in mind Paul of Tarsus and, and we have his narrative account in Acts. And yet later later accounts are going to or later scholarship is going to have another critical look at it and say, well the writing of one is seems to be different from the writing of this. And as they piece together history of the New Testament, what what makes sense of being written where? And then we have kind of the, we have some uh, letters having a doubtful authorship that it actually belongs to the Apostle Paul. And the three of these are specifically, uh, that I want to mention, or that a question came into us, were with First and Second Timothy and Titus, Titus, so often called the pastoral epistles. Um, let's say, for example, uh, that these have disputed authorship. Can letters remain scripture part of our, our holy writ, even if we don't know the author. So setting aside whether or not Paul was the author of those, uh, even if they're disputed authorship, can letters remain scripture for us? Well, the book of Hebrews, um, again, there, there are still some who would argue for Pauline authorship of, of Hebrews, not uh, more on a popular level, but um, I think many, many, most people are comfortable with the idea that we don't know who the author of Hebrews was, and and it seems to be doing just fine as scripture. So, I mean, in, in, when you word the question that way, I don't think we don't know who the author of Joshua is, um, uh, but it seems to be in the canon just fine. So, I mean, there's a first a first response, and now I'll let the harder response, uh, <laughs> Dr. Joseph. Oh. That's always the benefit of going oh, first. Man. Right? Yeah, I know. I need to go first next and, time, and, and right? Frankly, it's one of the benefits of asking the questions. I, that, that's my part, right? I, I, I need, contribute by asking the questions. So. I need to go first next time. Uh, I, I think, again, it's it goes down to when it comes to interpretation, it's not just 
the question, but also why we're asking the questions, what's behind the question. So in this in this context, in terms of the authorship, why was the authorship important, right? So we, we had talked about um, in the in the canonization process, um, apostleship was very important for uh, for the for the church in terms of determining the the value of these. But beyond apostleship, there was also the idea of of the authority. There was an intrinsic authority that that came from the text. As you read this, you could feel the Holy Spirit speaking. You could feel the text itself becoming the word of God for the people of God, right? So having said all of this, there's a way in which I think our idea of authorship has been skewed as, you know, as time progresses so that you have letters that in the, in the introduction, which is who's sending this letter? Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Greetings. You've got three people sending this letter to the church, but we arbitrarily say this is Paul's letter. It's actually not just Paul's letter. It's Paul, Silas, and Timothy writing the church. So what I'm saying here is the fact that there are letters that have multiplicity, multiple authors that we arbitrarily assign only to Paul. And it would be good to acknowledge, oh, what does it mean for Timothy to be saying this and not just Paul saying that tale, the, you know, em embracing these ideas. Um, and then there will be, you know, later on the, what we call, you know, the disputed letters for, I, I don't think the places to go into the critical arguments for that, except to say, yes, these can still be considered scriptures and they are scripture because throughout the church, their value as, as their ability to guide us to the truth continue to be felt. And that ultimately the Holy Spirit is the author of scripture. And it's not scripture because Paul wrote it, it's scripture because it is God's word and the Holy Spirit undergirds and is revealed through the reading of it. What, what's coming to mind is, and I know that this is going to surprise both you gentlemen, but at times in my own pastoral ministry, I would have notes passed to me about something most often that I had done wrong. And that note would be anonymous. And, <laughs> and generally, anonymous notes I would not pay as much attention to as notes of somebody that had signed their name, even if it was a negative one, right? As a, if it was a critique. I think, you know, so that I, I get why having a name attached to it matters. And yet, Dr. J, I kind of, I hear you saying there's a, there's another level of authority that turns this into to scripture. And, and what I'm wondering is if I admit that we, maybe we don't know the author or the author is disputed or uh, even that the author doesn't matter that much, that doesn't quite jive with my experience. Can you speak, can you speak to that? So, so we go back to what Dr. Schenk mentioned earlier. There were people around who knew. Hmm. The fact that we, because the, the dispute, most of, some, some of these things are things that are coming later on, right? There are people around who looked at this and knew the, the, the provenance. And also in terms of what we think about authorship, there's, there's the idea also that in the ancient world, um, 
what they call schools, right? So there, there may be disciples of Paul who wanted to, to contribute or to contribute to his legacy, who may write in his honor, write down the teachings and, and share them. That was completely acceptable. But the, 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 the context in which these letters originated would have been context where the church, the early church, would have been able to vet where they came from, who wrote them, and, and, then, and then why. But if we were to answer the issue of anonymity, so allow me to tell a story in terms of the idea of the church knowing. So I was teaching a class and again, dealing with this very issue about the church knows and were able to vet these, these documents. When two students decided to test it, they submitted their assignments and they didn't put their names on them. So in a class of 45, it was a New Testament survey class. So we're talking about authorship and, and all of the process. So they submitted their papers to see if I will know which paper was whom. I, I found out later on because as I'm grading the paper, so I'm looking at the writing. So I you know, kind of put the name on. And then when I went back to class after the grading, it's like, this is your paper, right? Why was it anonymous? It's like, oh, we were just trying to see if what you talk about the Bible, if that's, if that was true. It's like, well, you know, it's good thing you told me because in another reality, you could have gotten a zero. I'm, I say all this to say that when you live with somebody, when, when you know them and they write to you, whether or not they tell you, you will know. And part of the issue again is in the letters and the gospels, Sometimes the author will not reveal themselves simply because that which was spoken was about Christ, not about them. And they were self-effacing for a reason. The Gospels, it was later on, they'll say, oh, this is the one according to Mark. This is the one according to Matthew. Mark didn't self-identify. Matthew didn't self-identify. Dr. Schenk. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I was thinking uh, about Origen, uh, what he says about Hebrews. I mean, everybody quotes him on uh, who the author was, God knows. But if I remember correctly, the full quote is something like, the thoughts are Paul's, but who the author is, God knows. And so, in a sense, he, he if, if I'm interpreting this correctly, he interprets Paul as it were the authority mm -hmm. behind Hebrews, mm -hmm. even though because he can tell the style is not Paul's, he doesn't think Paul is the actual one to put the stylus to the papyrus or, or, or however. So um, I read a, a, a few years ago, I used um, uh, the introduction to the New Testament textbook by Joel Green, Marianne Thompson, and, and Paul Ochtemeyer. And I, I thought they actually took it a little too far, uh, but they suggested that an ancient author would have thought that they were lying if they didn't put Paul's name on something that they mm -hmm. thought were, uh, were his mm -hmm. thoughts, even if he was dead. Hmm. Now I, I wasn't completely convinced of that, but they were they were arguing basically that authorship uh, was more about the authority authority behind the writing uh, than necessarily the person who actually wrote it down. I thought that was an interesting perspective. Let's delve a little bit into some of the the stories or the claims of scripture itself. 
and do some some exegetical work. Um, so we had a few questions that emerged on this kind of theme. Uh, let's start with uh, let's start with an easy one. Uh, is Revelation twelve about Mary? I use easy facetiously. Right? <laughs> is Revelation twelve all right? This the story of the of the woman and the and uh, the dragon. Is this about Mary? It's a yes or no question. <laughs> We're laughing, right? So um, yes and no. Yes and no in that. Um, John in Revelation is using a lot of Old Testament imagery to as a, a as a way of undergirding the message that he is uh, he is uh, doing. So, if you take the Son to be Jesus Christ, right? Then of course the mother is Mary, uh, but the imagery is multifaceted. Uh, it can be Israel. Uh, it can be the church, uh, and I think it's purposeful because Revelation is written to the church, past, present, and future, which means then the the, the imagery has that has that flexibility built into it. I will I will say. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> um, of course, of course, it's very tempting to to see Mary as the. But then there's some some kind of, it's kind of like that works, and then and then you read it on and, and it breaks down. <laughs> yeah, um, she has a head, uh, a crown of twelve stars. Mm -hmm. So then you think Israel, mm -hmm. uh, but then um, it seems like she's fleeing to the wilderness, which sounds like the church. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be Israel too, in the context yeah. of the Exodus and time in the wilderness, or Mary going to Egypt again. Yeah, so it's the flexibility. I think is 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 there, and I've wondered. Um, uh, I've wondered if there's a a sense of the church is the true Israel here. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, you know, the the church, uh, which is Israel, mm -hmm. flees unbelieving Israel or Romans. I mm -hmm. suppose more directly, but yeah. Well, I'm I'm properly confused. Yeah. Well. With, the the larger the, so so the to answer the question we have to get the larger imagery right so in the context of the church going to the wilderness why did they go to the wilderness to be cared for yeah. right so it's the idea of God preserving the church because the wilderness mm. the place of danger is also the place of preservation mm. so that it's not just let's think about who the woman is let's think about what the imagery as a whole is conveying. And what is John telling us? Because ultimately, the people he's writing to have to answer the okay. So what? So what is it conveying? And in that case, the church who who God takes to the wilderness to be cared for and, and preserved, and using previous imageries of what God has done for Israel to help them understand He can do the same today for you in the midst of dangers. There are other things echoing in my head. Lots of things do. Um, there's the uh, uh, the, the, the tradition that the early church fled to Pella during the mm. the uh, uh, surrounding of Jerusalem by the Romans. Uh, there's that verse in Mark 13. Mm -hmm. uh, when you see the abomination that yeah. causes desolations, let those uh, flee to flee the to the mountains. Yeah. Um, anyway, so let, let's keep in in Revelation for a little bit. One of the questions that inevitably comes up in this kind of sphere, this kind of con conversation, is is Revelation about the past? Or is Revelation about 
the future. And I know you might want to say it's about yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> so our very astute question asker gets into it, and they say specifically, does the mark of the beast have to do with future technology implanted in our bodies? <laughs> See, no. it's an astute question. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we didn't time that. <laughs> I, I was waiting. No. no. <laughs> um, and, and although yet, you never know, you, you never know. know. God, God does surprise you. You never know. And, and yet there are there are writers who will absolutely claim, like, of course, this is a technological warning yeah. to us, yeah. right? And, and and we all see on social media different articles that say, like, watch out for these computer chips, and yeah. you can you yeah. can scan your wrist in front of a barcode, and it's going to yeah. come into your account, right? So there, there's there's, there's complexity that comes to this yeah. as well. And you're, you're saying, no, talk to us maybe from a wider angle. Why do you think that, that this is not about the future? And maybe give us some tips on how we can read Revelation well sure. so that it informs us in our spiritual lives. I mean, so I think it's about the future, but it's also about the present. And um, so John is using the past to address a present reality with shapes the future um, reality and when we talk about the mark you know on the forehead and all of that the imagery there talks about identity whose are you um, do you do you embody the mark of the beast and live like people who are against God Antichrist do you embody and live like people who are like Christ? Because it's not just the mark of the beast that's given. God's people mm. also are marked. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we focus so much on the mark of the beast and completely ignore there's also another mark that is given to those who are faithful. So, it, so that's why I think it's less about... It's less about uh, technology and more about how do we live in the world? Can we live in such a way that people can see and say, yeah, this one belongs to God. There's something about our identity and about the way we live that will tell that difference. Let, let me see if I can jump off that as a, as a pastoral theologian for a little bit and see if I may be getting at some of what you're saying. That sometimes we we, answer, we want to answer this question in a way that ultimately distracts from the form of our life. So a person who wants to sit to have a very uh, deep affirmation that this is about embedded computer chips in their arm might might be very wary about doing that, mm -hmm. but might also be very uncritical about how much time they spend with technology mm -hmm. and and would have a life that is wrapped up in a phone, a video game, uh, a an iPad, right? That, that does realism in general. Right, right. Move, moving mm -hmm. out from there. Mm -hmm. And so there's a way that, that kind of our, our desire to make the text very specific is ultimately a way that um, keeps us safeguarded from it actually forming our lives. Mm -hmm. That what is my life actually marked by? Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. do I spend time thinking about? What's mm -hmm. on my mind? Mm -hmm. Right, we use that phrase. What's on my mind? That doesn't have to have something literally embedded in my head or tied to my forehead. But but there's things that are that are on our mind. Have I sold out to the kingdom of this world? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does that does that kind of get into what you're talking about? Well, I believe so. Okay. I believe so. So that it's it's less about a physical because remember that John is using imageries that that are drawn from the Old Testament in order to make a case. It's a veiled, it's a veiled message, but one that's supposed to be understood by the people that are in mm. 
Yes? Mm -hmm. Insiders will understand what he means. So that when God was about to deliver Israel, he mocked his people. Ergo, the blood on on the doorpost. Something similar is going to happen when he's about to deliver. Mm. But at that time, his people will be marked, but also those that are not will also be marked. And we can tell the difference between the two. But then the difference is at this point is going to be in the, it's, it's the way of life. Mm. Those that are faithful, you, you, you see that word coming times and times again in, in, in Revelation in terms of why we need to live faithful life, faithful witness. Yeah. And, and, um, uh, I've always, not always, but I've wondered if there are archetypal images in Revelation that were that that come out of the Roman world. Mm-hmm. So they're not limited to the Roman world, but but maybe they were grounded in various figures um, from that particular time, uh, to where the, the, the those those sorts of images can play themselves out over and over mm-hmm. again in history, and and maybe they'll play themselves out in some definitive way at, mm-hmm. before the Lord returns. But but they have their roots in mm. concrete kinds of coded mm-hmm. coded messages that we kind of guess at. Um, you know, there, there's a five kings on seven hills. Mm-hmm. You know, f- five or five are gone. One. You know, um, it seems to me the mention of seven hills. Surely anybody in Ephesus or Thyatira would think Rome. Um, but that doesn't mean that the imagery has to has to stop there. Yeah. yeah. But we can we can then begin to explore. Uh, what would the what would the imperial situation be like uh, in the late first century uh, to try to um, to maybe at least begin to to hypothesize what the the, the deeper meanings of revelations would have been mm-hmm. revelation would have been. Mm-hmm. So I, I hear you giving some some tips for reading Revelation, and one is doing historical and cultural work. How would the initial hearers have? What would they? How would they have been reading it? But then also uh, the narrative of scripture work, right? Mm-hmm. That, uh, where else in scripture do we see some of these these images? Where else do we see some of these themes? And so using both of those lenses as ways to get into the text. And then ultimately, I mean, the phrase is, is uh, reading in front of the text, mm-hmm. right? Not just going behind it, but but being in front of it. And how does this form our lives in ways that, that are broad, broadly accurate and, and helpful, even if they, they deploy some imagination mm-hmm. about what does it mean to be, to be marked, right? Sure. How does it mean to have a hand that's marked for the Lord and a mind that's marked for the Lord. Mm-hmm. Joining us today has been uh, Dr. Absin Joseph and Dr. Ken Schenk, uh, both deans here at uh, Indiana Wesleyan University, uh, Dr. Schenk in the School of Theology and Ministry and Dr. Joseph at Wesley Seminary. So thank you very much, gentlemen, for joining us today. Thank you. And pleasure. Thank you for your questions. I hope that uh, you'd be willing to come back and entertain a few more questions sometime for us as well. It would be our pleasure. Likely. And we hope, listeners, that you have enjoyed this podcast and that it's been resourceful to you and that you will also avail yourself of some of the other resources through the Wesley Seminary podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in today and have a great day. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary.